0: Hi, this is Riley Fessler, the producer of the DSR Network of Podcasts. Given the current crisis in Israel and Gaza, this week's episode from the Archive comes from February of this year, where our panel of experts breaks down Secretary of State Blinken's visit to Israel. Please enjoy. The DSR listener survey is now here. Your voice matters and we want to hear it, so please take a moment to fill out the survey and help us make our podcasts even better. You can find a link to the survey in the show description below. Thank you.
1: 9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from cold but lovely Washington, D.C. We are joined today also in Washington, D.C. by our dear friends, Corey Schake of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing today, Corey?
2: I'm exceedingly well. Thank you,
1: David. Excellent. And Rosa Brooks in Alexandria, Virginia, of Georgetown University Law School. How are you doing today, Rosa Brooks? I'm well. Thank you, David. And far away, for those of us who are in Washington, but close to everyone else in Israel, we have Alan Pincus, former senior Israeli diplomat in multiple posts and also a regular columnist for Aretz. How are you doing this evening, Alon?
0: Very well, thank you. All things considered, but I, I don't want to start kvetching, so I'm good.
1: You are here to kvetch. In fact, you're the official kvetcher <laughs> of Deep State
0: Radio. You wrote a interesting
1: column summing up the visit of Secretary of State Antony Blinken to Israel. For those who have not seen it, who maybe. not follow you as they should on a regular basis in Haaretz. What was your point?
0: Well, the point was that the, um, well, there were two points to begin with. The first one was that uh, the Secretary of State, I doubt that the Secretary of State wanted to be where he was. A month into the formation of the government with the U.S.'s short and medium term interests lying in the Ukraine Russia war and long term foreign policy challenges and commitments in China, the last thing the administration wanted was to be dragged into the Middle East. On top of which, if you had asked President Biden or Secretary Blinken or DCIA uh, uh, Bill Burns, who was there just the day before, or National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who was there three days before, who was here, I'm sorry, three days before, They would want nothing more than Israel for Israel to disappear from the front pages of the Washington Post and New York Times and certainly to disappear from the uh, top page or top screen of the presidential's daily briefing. Yet the Middle East has a tendency and and Israel has a proclivity to superimpose itself on the American agenda. And so Blinken came here. So the first point was he didn't. My first point is he'd rather not be here. Or as W.C. Fields uh, um, says on, the, in, on his tomb, tombstone, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. The second point hey, is Hey, hey, that's Philadelphia you're dissing. I know, I know. As we should. As we should. As any <laughs> New
1: York Giants fan should. It was such an outrage this week that the Empire State Building was lit in the colors of the Philadelphia Eagles. But
2: it was fabulous to see the responses to it, including club. <laughs> A Twitter handle called New York's Other Buildings.
0: <laughs> I, I saw that. I, saw, I, I actually saw that. I thought it was disgusting. And I followed the, uh, the Empire State Building account on Twitter, and I told them, shame on you. Not bad enough that you put it green when it's the Jets, but now the Eagles. But the second, the second point was, apropos of the, uh, uh, the Blinken visit, was that he came here at a time when there's a, um, a convergence at a certain point on the timeline of an assault on democracy within Israel, a a domestic onslaught on the uh, political and constitutional, on the Supreme Court and indeed on the uh, notion and and concept of separation of powers, and a conflagration in the territories between Israel and the Palestinians, and bellicose statements and, and, and actions coming out of Israel Vis-a-vis Iran. And and that was probably the reason Blinken came here. All in all, I thought it was a good visit, as these visits are, but.
1: Corey, one of the things that Alan said in his uh, column was that uh, Blinken was essentially mild but direct in expressing the concerns of the United States. What did you think of his tone? And if either you or Rosa obviously have any questions for Alan in Israel, Feel free to direct them in that direction also.
2: You know, I think American diplomacy is generally well served by mild and direct conversations with close friends. And we were reminded of it in a European context the last couple of weeks with the drama over Germany providing leopard tanks to Ukraine. So, in general, I think that's the right tone. I also think the delicacy. Just
1: just, uh, just to to tease that out a little bit, just as a subset, it's kind of off the point, but Lloyd Austin went to this contact group meeting in Rammstein, and he's always sort of behind the scenes and quiet, and yet he got done what he wanted to get done. That does seem to me an example of mild and direct that work, right?
2: I think that's right. Right. It matters that the Secretary of Defense gathers 50 of his counterparts every single month to hear from Ukrainians what they need and to figure out how to get it to them. I have the sense, though, that in this particular example, the administration was surprised that Germany wouldn't consent without the U.S. providing tanks that aren't a terrific fit for Ukraine's needs. But it's a reminder, which takes us back to the Middle East, about how much it matters to America's allies when they feel threatened to have American skin in the game. And my sense of what's going on in administration policy toward Israel, you know, the big military exercise we just did together is that there are... Turning the kaleidoscope, trying to find effective levers to affect the Iranian government's judgment about returning to the JCPOA. And I, of course, defer to Alan and think he's right about Lincoln not wanting to be there, especially now, given all that's going on internal to Israel and between Israel and the Palestinians. But I think a lot of the activism is actually driven by a desire to find some way to show support to America's friends in the region as Iran continues to not take seriously JCPOA negotiations.
1: So, Alan, jot down Iran because we'll come back to it. But I want to hear Rosa's comment to the opening bit as well. So what, 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 what do you think?
3: Yeah, no, I I mean, clearly, Tony Blinken would rather have been almost anywhere even Philadelphia, than in Israel, standing next to Netanyahu. And you know, Tony Blinken, like most diplomats, but perhaps even more so he's a you know, he is a soft spoken, careful guy. But when Tony Blinken says things like, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we we, we stand together because our shared interests and values, uh, including core democratic principles respect for human rights the equal administration of justice for all the equal rights of minority groups a robust civil society and so on i, I mean that coming from anybody else would be kind of anodyne uh clichés coming from tony blinken at that moment in that place in that tone was sort of the diplomatic equivalent of you better do this or else i mean it was a pretty stern warning and i think it was understood that way by the israeli press and within israel that that was not just a jolly, friendly, you know. We love you. We love you. That that was a hey. If you can't live up to these values, there's going to be a a serious problem. Uh, and you know, he's right to push on that, obviously. But it's it's a difficult and uncomfortable moment. It's a moment where it seems like the potential. I mean, I'd be very interested in in Alan hearing your your thoughts on this. It seems like this is a moment where things could go south really, really fast uh, potentially. And and I'm I'm curious to know whether you think uh, Tony Blinken's remarks are likely to have the effect of sort of keeping things stable, or will they just make things worse and convince the hardliners within Israel that there's no point, you know, the US isn't gonna is gonna be mad at them anyway, so they might as well just do whatever they want to do.
0: Well, he's he's not gonna convince the right wing. Uh, ex- certainly not the extreme right wing, and this government has made of three components, uh, um, a hard right wing, an extreme right wing, and an ultra-orthodox right wing. And I failed to see uh, uh, him convincing anyone that they should change course and alter the course, certainly not as a result of external pressure. Rosa, you you listed the things that uh, Blinken himself listed as core values he was very very precise in the things that he mentioned he was enumerating not core values in the political science 101 class at georgetown but he was referring very directly and very unequivocally to the things that are laser pinpoint under assault in israel right now and he went on to then he went on to then laud the the israeli pub, uh, civil society and civic organizations uh, for standing up and protesting and demonstrating and these are the core values and immediately immediately as you would have imagined you had a right wing response that first became you know the knee jerk reaction who's he to tell us what to do okay put that aside but then came the uh, what about this hypocrisy i mean why why did we not hear an american secretary of state saying these things about hungary and turkey to nato members not to mention uh, um, our beloved friends and brothers, the Saudis. And the answer, the answer to that is he also doesn't need to mention these things when he concludes a visit in Paris, London, Ottawa, or, or uh, Amsterdam, or The Hague, because Israel wants to belong to the second group, not the first group, which is why he said what he said. And when a relationship is predicated unless less in the last decade or so less strategic commonality of interests, and more the concept of shared values, it's perfectly okay for the U.S. to express its uh, discomfort, displeasure, concern, call it what you want, with what's going on in Israel's uh, backsliding into an illiberal, potentially backsliding into an illiberal democracy. Now, as for the Palestinians, he did one thing. David mentioned my column, and I thank him for it. But he did do one thing that I neglected to mention because it happened in the column because it, it, it only came to light the day after. He left a team here and he announced it after his visit to the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah yesterday that he's leaving a team to overlook the, uh, uh, the renewal of security coordination and cooperation between Israel and the Palestinians. Now, I think that is a paramount interest the U.S. now has. And parenthetically, at the same time that Lincoln was in, in, in Israel, King Abdullah was in, um, in Washington. By the way, Rosa, King Abdullah was a student of mine at Georgetown when I was a teaching assistant. To Madeleine Albright in 1987, but that's oh, wow. that's that. Yeah, I gave it. I gave him an A. I gave him an A. Uh, you know, for future for future references, I didn't. Just in case be, uh, you need a little leverage case, at some point. It's too yeah, bad no,
3: you actually gave him a grade. You should have said, "I'm going to wait and give you a grade in about 50 uh, well, years."
0: No one, no one thought at the time that he would become <laughs> king. I mean, it was all about Hassan, uh, King Hussein's younger brother. But then things, you know, happened the way transpired the way they did. Okay, but that, that was just a, uh, a, a bio- biographical note that I'm sort of proud of. But at the same time that Blinken was here, King Abdullah was in, in, in Washington briefing members of Congress. And I can only imagine that he basically said to them what Blinken said here to uh, Netanyahu, to Prime Minister Netanyahu. And that is, be careful because if there is an implosion in the Palestinian Authority you'll be looking at a completely different reality in which the U.S., and I, he did not say this publicly, which is why I emphasize that he was very mild and mellow and, and, and soft-spoken, but it was unequivocally clear that he said what he said that was, you know, kind of the subtext. If this goes on, both domestically in Israel, but even more so with the Palestinians, The U.S. is going to find it increasingly difficult to defend Israel and stand by Israel in places like the U.N. Security Council or the International Court of Justice or International Criminal Court, both in The Hague and elsewhere. So I think in that respect, uh, that was a visit that was a a cautionary tale of sorts. One more remark to all three of you who followed this U.S.-Israel relationship for years. Usually when these meetings end, and I'm not saying it's the same sequence, it's not always that a secretary of state comes here, but it did happen when Hillary Clinton came in 2009 and then John Kerry came in 2012 after the U.S. election, in both cases in eight and in 12. But this time, Lincoln did not leave the proverbial invitation to the White House Usually, when a when a Secretary of State comes to Israel, he leaves a sort of an open ended, or even, or sometimes even a direct invitation from the president. The president would love to see you in the uh, in the very near future. And Israeli prime ministers are then very quick to boast domestically. Well, I'll talk to uh, Mr. Biden or Mr. Trump or Mr. Obama or Mr. Bush. Go back as many presidents as you wish. This time it didn't happen, and and I'm not saying I'm not making too much of it, but it 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 does it does, should I say, veer out of the uh, veer away from the usual uh, sequence of relations. What do you think, Corey?
2: That's really interesting, and I doubt it's coincidence that it happened. I I do think the administration's really struggling and. It's actually Prime Minister Netanyahu's own fault because he so stridently politicized the issue of Israel during the Trump administration, um, and, and he it, did,
0: he did that deliberately, Corey.
2: Yeah, and even under cooperative circumstances, that's going to take a while to wear off, and it's not. I'm not surprised that the administration doesn't think. It's clear that we're in cooperative circumstances with the Israeli government.
0: Now, can I can I can I add one more uh, um, thing, David? Sure, but then Rosa will have to respond to no, it. Well, absolutely. <laughs> you know, this, 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 uh, board, what if I disagree? agree? The Boris yeah. <laughs> belt political culture. Um, no, my only my only addition to what Corey just said is that in order to somehow correct the media reports, or in his mind, to correct the record of the media reports of Blinken's visit, Netanyahu last night hurried to uh, grant an interview to Jake Tapper from, uh, uh, from CNN, in which, according to an article published by our mutual friend Amil Tibon today, and listed in a lengthy Twitter thread by former Ambassador, U.S. Ambassador to Israel Martin Nendik, he just lied between six and 10 times. Depends how you uh, treat each and every lie. And Netanyahu was trying hard to relay a message that through his CNN interview was clear or put the spotlight on what Lincoln was doing here. Netanyahu was was very adamant in insisting that he calls the shots. He's in control. He will set policy. He will set the tone. He will uh, frame and define... The entire uh, uh, political landscape. It was important for him to emphasize that, but uh, along the way, he did what he does, what he usually does, and that is, unfortunately, misinformed. I don't want to say lie, misinformed.
1: You know, Rosa, a moment or two ago, Ilan used the term, you know, backsliding with regard to Israel. You know, and and I think one of the messages that that. Blinken sent was "Don't become Viktor Orbán," but he's already become Viktor Orbán.
3: Yes, well, that was part of diplomatic politeness, as pretending it hasn't happened already.
1: I mean, compared to where they were, they've been backsliding throughout the Trump administration. It's
3: quite shocking and it's quite distressing. And I actually have a question for Elon. One of the things that clearly is happening in the United States is a sort of generational realignment within both the Democratic Party broadly speaking, and within American Jewish community, that although support for Israel remains, and, you know, positive images of Israel remain quite strong in an older generation, that people, you know, under 40 or 50 more have a negative impression of Israel than positive. And, and we're seeing that reflected in, in Congress. We're seeing that reflected in public remarks by, you know, leading and very moderate Democrats uh, in the Senate and in the House as well as by the left wing of the Democratic Party. And, you know, so it's, it's clear that that shift is, there's a real realignment that, that younger Jewish people in the United States and younger Democrats are really beginning to think of Israel as, as, a, as a lost cause in a way, you know, that, they, that, that Netanyahu has already become Viktor Orban, that things are not going to get better, that things are not going to change, that Israel should not be our friend, you know, that, that of course that you know, survival of the Jewish state people support, but the Israeli government people are beginning to kind of give up on it. And, and I wonder if you think that, A, does, does Netanyahu care? Does his coalition government care? And do Israelis care? Or is this increasingly something where they're willing to also just shrug and say, you know what? We don't care what you think anymore. We don't, we don't really need you. It is not important to us any longer to maintain the support of the American Jewish community. Um, we're fine.
0: Judging by Netanyahu's policies, actions, statements, and, and patterns of behavior, he's done this deliberately. And you see, you see the evolution of this, Rosa, from the days, from the Clinton days. If you recall, 1998, first he aligned himself with Newt Gingers, but then, then found out that, that Clinton won re-election, and so he had this uh Clinton that culminated in 98 when he came to Washington and before seeing the president went at the uh, uh, at the Mayflower Hotel to a big gathering of Jerry Fowell's evangelical organization. Was it the moral majority or. And, and you see it ever since his relations with Obama and his uh, bromance with Trump. He has made a conscious decision. First, he looked at the numbers. He said, all right, there are six six and a half million American Jews, 75 or five and a half, depends how you count, 75% of which vote for Democrats. They're all, uh, you know, Upper West Side New York liberals who don't get it. So I'll replace. This is his version of replacement theory. I'll replace the six and a half million, the six million, with 75 million evangelicals who love me. And, you know, the rupture and Armageddon and crime rate is going up in Washington, I hear. And rupture and Armageddon and all that, eh, you know, that, that, that could wait. And he aligned himself first with Gingrich, then with the Tea Party, and then with the uh, Trump MAGA, Make America Great Again, used to be by name only Republicans. It was okay when he was tilting Uh, or trending Republican, that's fine. But he aligned himself clearly with the most right-wing elements of the Republican Party. And he couldn't care less about about American Jews because they don't get it. Now, on top of that, you have to give him credit for one thing. He was looking at the same data that we know, that not only 75% on average of American Jews vote for Democrats, But when asked by J Street, Pew Research, or the American Jewish Committee, three of which organizations of which conducted polls, not at the same time, but throughout the last decade, Israel is not the top five and and rarely in the top 10 issues when, when a Jewish person comes to vote, whether he lives in New York, Chicago, Miami, or San Francisco, or Washington. And so Netanyahu doesn't care about American Jews. You know, if you, if you take another aspect of this, he's the first one to keep on using the term the progressives, the radical left in America, the squads, as, as, you know, insinuating or, or, or dog whistling that this is a basically anti-Semitism. The Berkeley campus and, and Ilhan Omar and, and AOC are basically anti-Semites, while John Hagee, is, is a true friend of Israel. Forget what John Hagee said about Jews and former Prime Minister Sharon. That's, that's conveniently forgotten. So I don't think he cares. To make a long story short and a, and a short question, to avoid a, 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 a too lengthy answer, I don't think he cares. But where will he care? If there is an open confrontation, Blinken did make it clear, again, in his visit in the Palestinian Authority, rather than inside Israel, that the U.S. opposes expansion of settlements, ex- opposes annexation of any, any Palestinian areas, including so-called Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank, but only a, a small number of Palestinians reside in. If Blinken is against that, and Blinken being the U.S., so if the U.S. is opposed to that, that is also opposed to the very basic guidelines of this government that writes and states clearly that it intends to expand settlements and annex territories. And that puts Israel and the U.S. on an almost inalterable collision course. Corey.:
2: So Elon, can I ask, how do the limits on cooperation with Abraham accord countries? Come into this equation about the Netanyahu government's policies. Are they likely to be able to be a restraining force on settlements or Palestinian issues?
0: Well, the short answer is yes, they should be, because Netanyahu is quietly saying to everyone who uh, cares to hear that his number one foreign policy priority is going to be relations or expanding or formalizing relations with the Saudis. That's not going to be achieved if he does nothing with the Palestinians. If you look at the composition of the coalition, he's not going to do anything with the, with the Palestinians. If uh, Minister of, um, no less, National Security, Ben Gvir, is going to go up, ascend to Temple Mount again, that's going to cause a big deal with Jordan and the uh, UAE, the United Arab Emirates. So it sh- it, on the face of it, it should limit and cons- you know constrain and restrain him, but I just don't see that happening. He's not really in charge. He's being held hostage by the extreme right wing who know he is weak because his, his prime objective is to extricate himself from a criminal trial that is going on against him on charges of bribery, corruption, fraud, and obstruction of justice. And they're holding him, uh, and you know he's beholden to them.
1: Earlier, Corey mentioned that one of the potential bridges in the relationship has to do with Iran policy. Let, let me first go to Rosa, but then to Alon, and then maybe Corey may have some final thoughts on this. Do you see that as as a possible area where these two administrations can work together, Rosa, or? Is the, are there even substantial enough differences there?
3: I mean, I defer to Ilan on this, but but it seems to me that that there is a very narrow area of of overlap of interest. I mean, obviously, we don't want Iran supplying drones to Russia. We don't want Iran to continue to develop its nuclear program. Neither does Israel on that on that certainly on that second one. I'm not sure Israel cares all that much on the first, you know. And but but Israel has. You know, consistently taken a much more hardline stand on Iran than than Obama's administration or the Biden administration has taken in terms of a sort of willingness to try to talk things through, a willingness to initially, you know, give give the JCPOA or JCPOA as we like to call it here on Deep State Radio a chance to try to revive any pieces of that. You know, I don't get any sense that that uh, the Israeli government has the slightest interest in in seeing us do that or helping us do that. On the contrary, and I don't know the uh, last week, so it was it last week, uh, Israeli uh, uh, attack on uh, an Iran drone-making facility. You know, I have no idea whether that is something that the U.S. was aware of beforehand or whether the U.S. found out about it after the fact. But generally speaking, the U.S. has been, you know, at best ambivalent and, and frequently distressed by Israeli direct action uh, inside Iran, which is seen as, as potentially destabilizing to diplomatic efforts that the US is interested in undertaking. So obviously, you know, both countries are, from where I sit, it looks as though obviously both countries are very concerned about Iran, but the, what they each see as the potential path forward for diplomacy is quite different from the Israeli side, essentially none. And I, I don't know, Alan, what are you what is your take on that? Does that seem right or, or am I missing, missing some of the nuances? No,
0: no, 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 I, I think you're absolutely right. Okay. You know, if we dissect this, we're going to see some different, uh, la- different tiers or, la- or layers of policy. First, there's the nuclear issue, and then there's the non-nuclear pattern of Iranian activity in the Middle East. Per the nuclear issue, on the face of it, the U.S. and Israel say the same thing. We will not allow Iran to develop a military nuclear option. Biden had said this repeatedly, and I believe him. Trump said it, for, for whatever that matters, and, and Obama said that, which, ergo, the JCPOA, or Jack Poe, as you call it in D.C., in 2015. But there is, there is a major difference that needs to be emphasized here. The U.S. is tolerant, is okay, and can live with a, a threshold state, Iran. Threshold being a spectrum in which Iran gradually but very very slowly moving toward the ability to to uh, uh, manufacture produce develop a nuclear option but not not making a political decision not to go or break out time so to speak not not to go there israel says ostensibly and this is successive israeli governments not this particular government that it cannot live with a threshold iran so there's a gap here that everyone's trying to uh, paint over, but at some point, it's going to be out. The second thing, the second tier, the second level of analysis is the nuclear versus the non-nuclear. When in 2015, there was criticism of Obama and indeed the U.S.'s uh, uh, decision to go on the JCPOA, the main, the main criticism was, yeah, but it doesn't do anything about Iran's missile development, drone development, mentoring of terror organization, and network of proxy organization that is destabilizing the Middle East. And Obama said, as did others, guys, you said that the existential threat is the nuclear issue. We took care of that. Had we tried to include the other things, we wouldn't have an agreement. By that, we mean as far as the other issues are concerned, you're free to operate. Just just don't escalate this too much and don't drag us in. Israel took this as, as a uh, a yellow light, not a green light, but a yellow light to operate against Iran, uh, which it did effectively or not, or not remains to be seen. Attacking a drone plant reportedly in Isfahan, attacking a Convoy of trucks in Syria, or attacking Iranian presence in the south of the, the south, well, south of Syria on the Golan uh, border, the Israel-Syria border, falls under the category of non-nuclear. That's fine, but the U.S. is saying, guys, if you if you overdo this, if you open a new front, that will, by definition, sh- drag us in because, by extension, it drags the UAE. And Bahrain and Oman and Saudi Arabia into this. And Israel should really stop bragging about this, goes the American argument. Israel should really stop bragging about this and not come out with statements like like they did two days ago. It's always from a senior security official, never name, never face. It's always a senior guy who's saying the Americans in Israel are on the same page, we're, we're seeing things eye to eye. Were coordinated on both an intelligence and a policy level. That's not something the Americans want Israel to say. So even on that issue, I could see minor friction with the, uh, with the U.S. But, and this is my last insight on this, what the U.S. is most concerned about, I think, I don't know this for a fact, I'm, I'm, I'm guesstimating here, is that their experience with Benjamin Netanyahu is not good. Their experience with Benjamin Netanyahu's credibility and discretion is not good. When, when things that need to be coordinated, even disagreements that need to find some common ground, that should be held privately, uh, discreetly, secretly, if you will, between head of Mossad and deputy, and director of the CIA, between chief of staff, and the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, between the defense minister and secretary of defense, between the prime minister and the president. If this comes out every Monday or Thursday as some Israeli bragging headline, that's not something the Americans want, particularly, and I go back to the beginning of our conversation, but particularly at a time when the U.S. is dealing with the Russia-Ukraine issue and trying to build slash manage alliances in the Indo-Pacific. That's, that's the last thing the Americans want now.
1: Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thanks to everybody for spending this time. We'll obviously track these issues on an ongoing basis. Keep following us at thedsrnetwork.com. And if you wish to become a member, there's a little button you can click there, become a member for $5 a month. Help support more conversations like this. We'll see all you guys soon. Bye-bye.